Um, we'll take a look this morning at John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. Jesus speaking, and he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin... Because they do not believe in me of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the revelation from our Savior's heart and from his lips that are found in these verses. We just acknowledge that everything that he spoke is just priceless. It's priceless to us, Lord. And we want these truths to be lifted off of the printed page and be given a living, daily, practical, you-glorifying, God-glorifying place in each one of our lives. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit that we ask for this morning as we study your word. Give us understanding Lord, of what Jesus has said here, and then give us, Lord, the power of your spirit to obey it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17, are commonly known as uh, Jesus's uh, upper room discourse because it is Jesus's teaching to his disciples in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem on the night before his crucifixion. And it's interesting to note, I think, that a, a significant portion of his teaching on that night, more than I think we oftentimes realize, but a very significant portion of that teaching is given over to his instruction and his revelation concerning the Holy Spirit. In the recent weeks, we've been studying what Jesus had to, say, has had to say about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. And this morning, the reason I've jumped over into John chapter 16 and skipped much of 14 and 15 is I want to continue in this vein of the Holy Spirit and examine Jesus' instruction to us as his disciples regarding the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Who are those who Jesus refers to as the world? And we notice in verse 8 that this ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is describing here is directed toward those that Jesus refers to as the world. What does he mean by that? Who is he referring to when this group that he calls the world? He's not uh, referring to the planet. He's not referring to the dirt or the soil uh, of the earth. He is speaking of non-Christians, anyone and everyone, whether in this room or uh, anywhere that they are all around the world today, who have not yet put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, for the confidence of of one day spending eternity in heaven, 
and for the purpose of starting a personal relationship with God. And so he's speaking of those whose life is still completely wrapped up in this fallen world and their citizenship is here. They haven't don't yet have a citizenship in heaven. Now, notice, too, in verse eight that Jesus also told us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world. That word convict is a very interesting word. It's a very strong word. And again, like so many of of the uh, Greek words in the New Testament, they are word pictures. They're intended to pull a picture up uh, in our minds as we would think about them. And the, the word that's used for convict there, it means to put, to prove to someone that they are wrong concerning some particular issue or some particular subject. In fact, it's even stronger than that. It means to refute an adversary completely, to prove their guilt so thoroughly that not only are they forced to admit that they are wrong, but even to have a sense of shame that they ever believe to be true what they once believed to be true, believed to be true, but now know to be wrong. And the picture is this in a courtroom. It is of a, say, a prosecuting attorney rising up in uh, the courtroom. And as he is uh, dealing with a witness, perhaps by the time that prosecuting attorney gets done uh, dealing with that witness, that witness has come to a place where they realize that their position has been completely refuted. They're forced to admit that they're wrong and even forced to feel a sense of guilt for even believing what they once believed. What are the issues that the Holy Spirit is desiring to convict the world over? Three things. Sin, verses 8 and 9. Righteousness, verse 10. And judgment, verse 11. First, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. Notice that Jesus does not say that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sins, plural, but that he will convict the world of sin, singular. And what is that single great sin that concerns the Holy Spirit so much? We're told in verse 9, Jesus said, because they do not believe in me. That is the single great concern of the Holy Spirit regarding every single person in this room and every single person in this world is that none of us would be guilty of having failed to believe or to trust in or to put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. It's important to realize, technically speaking, that no one ends up in hell one day because of their sins, plural. But rather for their sin, singular, for the sin of rejecting Christ, who is the only one that can cleanse us 
of our sin. All of our sins can be forgiven, readily forgiven. But there is no forgiveness for the sin of failing to put our trust in Christ for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins. That is the only sin that cannot be forgiven. As the Apostle Peter spoke to a very religious crowd, by the way, the Sanhedrin, great 70 most powerful religious Jews in all of the world at the time of Christ. And when, Jesus, when Peter stood up before them testifying to Christ, he said in Acts chapter 4, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. All sin is serious. All sin is wrong in God's eyes. But the most grievous sin we can commit against God and commit against ourselves is to turn our nose upward against the Savior and the salvation that God has provided for us. By the way, at tremendous expense to himself and then reject the forgiveness and salvation that is found by putting our faith in Christ. That is the worst sin of all from the perspective of heaven. What we do with Jesus, that decision alone is what determines our eternal destination. Those who do not believe in the Son will go into a lost eternity, not because they are sinners, but because they have refused God's remedy for their sin, putting their faith in Christ. Now, what is fascinating about all of this to me is that Jesus didn't declare this great truth to the world. You would think he would have. But he declares this great truth to his disciples, to us, to Christians. Why would he do that? As Christians, we aren't lost. We aren't unsaved. We have honored God with our faith. Why would we need to know this? I think it's for a couple of reasons. Number one, first of all, so that we would be on the same page with the Holy Spirit in his effort to bring people to salvation in this world. Because if we don't know what he's aiming at, if we don't know what the Holy Spirit is endeavoring to convict people of, then we won't have the foggiest idea of how to cooperate with him in what he's trying to accomplish in an unsaved person. And the reason that is important is because in large part, he uses Christians to accomplish this work of conviction in the world. He doesn't do it just on his own, but he uses us most of the time to bring that conviction into another person's life. How does he do that? He uses us to share the, God's offer of salvation to people. He uses us to call people to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. He uses us to warn people 
of the very great consequences of failing to do so. I think the second reason that Jesus speaks this to us as his disciples is so that as Christians, we will remember to keep the main thing, the main thing in our dealing with the lost. And here's what I mean by that. It's very easy for us as Christians to focus on denouncing all manner of sins that people are practicing all around us and leaving people with the impression that supremely they are going to end up in hell based upon their practice of some particular sin rather than because of their failure to trust in Christ. I'll give you a couple examples of this. To the practicing homosexual, we rightly declare that their homosexuality is clearly sin. But we then fail to further communicate that homosexuality is not their biggest problem. Why are they a practicing homosexual? Because they're guilty of the greater sin of rejecting God's Son, rejecting God's salvation, and their continued life in the sin of homosexuality merely reveals that. The same thing applies to the adulterer or to the fornicator. Why are they practicing adultery? Why are they practicing fornication? Because they're guilty of the greater sin of rejecting God's salvation and His Savior. And thus, their continued life in the sin of adultery and fornication merely reveals that. Their real need is to put their trust in Jesus, and then all of these other things will fall away from their lives. Those things will take care of themselves. And we're not talking just about sexual sin. We can go on and illustrate it in the life of the thief or the drunk or the person that's constantly stoned in life, or the violent man or woman, or the foul-mouthed man or woman, or the liar, or the oppressor, or the proud, and so forth. Why is this important? I would venture to guess that if we ask the average unsaved person in the world today, would they understand the Bible to teach as the most serious sin of all to God? What sin cannot be forgiven? What sin above all other sins will land a person in hell? I think they would answer very, very quickly a number of things. I think most people would, in the light of the hour, say homosexuality. Or fornication, sex outside of marriage, or partying, or drunkenness, or lying, or stealing, or so forth. They would just come forth with this stream from the list of sins. Why would they do that? I think perhaps this misunderstanding can be traced back oftentimes to our failure as Christians to stay on message toward the unsaved world, to be clear with them 
that the sin that ultimately lands a person in hell is a failure to trust in Christ. Even when we must denounce other sins as being rightfully condemned by God, I think we must also then be careful to mention that it is not that sin that is going to land the person in hell. But be careful to mention that the greatest sin, the unforgivable sin, the sin that lands a person in judgment ultimately is a failure to believe in Christ. So that the world is black and white clear on this. So that if the average person who has ever had the gospel presented to them were asked what it is that lands a person ultimately in eternal judgment, they would be able to say, not begin to head into laying out a list of individual sins, but with great clarity speak and say, it is because of a failure for a person to put their faith in Christ. And when a person has that kind of clarity, they're able to lie their head on the pillow at the end of the day. And in those few moments before a person heads off to sleep, there's an opportunity for the mind to be filled with all manner of things that they will know that one day, the one sin that they cannot afford to be found guilty of is to die without having believed in Christ. It is that message that the Holy Spirit wants people to understand. It is that message that the Holy Spirit wants us to carry as Christians. It is that message that Jesus is telling us here that the Holy Spirit wants to say amen to or that's the truth to in people's hearts. So let's stay on message. Jesus is the message. Faith in Christ is the big deal. And that is the subject that we are to focus on in our ministry to the lost. Now notice 2 in verse 10 that Jesus declared that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. But he then went on to explain what he meant by that, by declaring, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. When did he go to his Father so that the disciples could see him no more? It happened when he ascended into heaven in the area of the Mount of Olives, Forty days after his death, burial, and resurrection. That ascension that is described in Acts chapter 1, the disciples, these same disciples were standing on that mount with him. And they watched, they watched him ascend into the clouds, into the Shekinah glory of God and return to the heaven that Jesus had come from. Acts records it this way. And now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. I love that scene of Jesus's ascension because it declares that whatever men thought of him 2000 years ago and whatever men think of him today, 
It doesn't affect heaven's estimate of him. Heaven was excited to have him back, eager to have him back. Now, Jesus is telling us that this, his ascension into heaven was intended to communicate something to mankind on the subject of righteousness. What did Jesus' ascension into heaven communicate concerning righteousness? His ascension into heaven was God's declaration to the world that the only righteousness, the only rightness, the only right-onness that is accepted in heaven is Jesus' righteousness, a perfect righteousness. I think it's very important to notice that Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world Of righteousness, not of unrighteousness, supremely. You'd think it'd be the other way around. That Jesus would tell us that the single great focus of the Holy Spirit will be to convict the world of its unrighteousness. That's not what it says. His focus is to convict the world of righteousness. One of the single greatest messages that the Holy Spirit wants the world to know is that a Perfect righteousness is required in order to get into heaven. That mankind cannot get into heaven by being better than some people or by even being better than most people. A perfect righteousness is required in order to enter into heaven. Well, Houston, we've got a problem here because the Bible teaches That none of us are righteous. That all of us are sinners. Romans chapter 3 verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Oh, you don't know my grandchildren. There are none righteous. No, not one. Give them time. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. Our sin has disqualified us for heaven. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses, our best, not even talking about our worst. And all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Paul, writing in the same vein to the Romans in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, said, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. There's something they don't know. For they being, and this is the, 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 the ignorance, for they being ignorant, Of God's righteousness, that he requires a perfect righteousness to enter into heaven. And thus seeking to establish their own righteousness, that is their own self-righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Translation, the only person who would spend even a moment endeavoring to earn their way into heaven, even spend a moment endeavoring to good their way, into heaven 
is the person who is ignorant of the fact that the standard concerning righteousness for entering into heaven is perfection. Once a person understands that the standard is perfection and that they're already disqualified because they're already sinners, we've already been less than perfect, they then abandon any hope of entering into heaven based upon their own good deeds and they begin to search for another way to enter. And when they do, God's Holy Spirit will faithfully lead them to God's solution to their problem. And what is God's solution to that problem? God's word declares that when we put our faith in Jesus, at that instant in time, Jesus' perfect righteousness is put to our account. So that for the rest of our lives and for all of our eternity, when God looks at us in terms of our suitability for heaven, he does not see our unrighteousness or our self-righteousness. He only sees the perfect righteousness of Christ covering me. And we receive that righteousness. We're qualified for heaven solely on the basis of putting our faith in Christ. Paul put it this way in writing to the Romans, Romans 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, that is, try to get to heaven on the basis of works, but believes on him, that is, Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. He said in that same Romans chapter 4, speaking of Abraham, being fully convinced that what he, that is God, had promised he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness based upon his faith. Paul then declared, now it is not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Then probably my favorite verse of all concerning this subject, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we put our faith in Christ, His righteousness is put to our account. I will never be open to God's salvation until I give up all attempts to save myself through my own human efforts. And I will not give up my own human efforts to save myself until someone has told me that the righteousness that is required to enter into heaven is perfection. And thus the Holy Spirit has come to inform us that the required righteousness for entrance into heaven is perfection so that we will cease our human efforts and put our faith in Christ. The conviction, this conviction of the Holy Spirit, 
not only concerning unrighteousness, but concerning righteousness is as needed today as it ever has been in human history. Because the prevailing idea in the world today, in Modesto today, is that if you work hard to live a good moral life, if you do more good than you do wrong, if you live a life that is better or more moral than most people, if you do good deeds, then of course you're going to go to heaven. And it's a lie. It isn't true. And so the Holy Spirit, and, and what erases the, that lie from a person's heart is to realize that it takes a perfect righteousness to enter into heaven. A righteousness that comes alone by faith. Now finally, notice in verse 11 that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Who is the ruler of this world? The ruler of this world is Satan. And Satan was judged and defeated, the Bible says, through the cross. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, speaking of Jesus and the cross and the impact that it had upon the devil and his whole demonic realm. Having disarmed principalities and powers. It's like you, you just see this whole gigantic army that's there and then somebody comes up and just slaps their rifle right out of their hand. Jesus completely disarmed the devil and the entire demonic realm through his death upon the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over, over them in it. Satan amassed, amassed all of his forces and power against Jesus when he was crucified. And he lost because the crucifixion wasn't the end of the story concerning Jesus. He then rose again on the third day. And the Bible teaches that one day Satan is going to be judged for his rebellion against God. And his rebellion is going to be brought to an end. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them, speaking of the world, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, that is the Antichrist. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And today the Holy Spirit convicts people that there is a judgment coming after this life. And that just as Satan's rebellion against God will be judged, so too God will judge every man and woman who chooses to follow in Satan's footsteps by choosing to live a life of rebellion against God. And so the Holy Spirit warns the world. There's a judgment coming for every human being. There is a judgment after this life. And if Satan, who is greater and far, far more powerful than any of us, has no hope of escaping it, then neither do we. 
If we reject the salvation that's found in Christ, then we will share the devil's judgment. Well, the Bible teaches that hell wasn't created for man, but that it was created for the devil and for his angels. But if a person is so determined in their rebellion against God, including their refusing to put their faith in Christ, then the Bible teaches that they will share the devil's end. I'll tell you the stakes and, and one of the things that the, 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 that the Holy Spirit is communicating in all of this is he wants us to let people know that the stakes are enormously high concerning whether one puts their faith in Christ or not. They're eternal. They are unspeakably high. They are indescribably high. And the fact of the matter is that we as Christians can tend to shy away from talk of future judgment and of hell and talking to the lost. But the Holy Spirit never does. He wants them to know it. It is a part of his message to them that he then uses to bring them to a faith in Christ. And so if the Holy Spirit doesn't shy away from that side of the message to the world, then neither should we. Again, notice that while this passage was spoken about the world, it was spoken to us as Christians. Why? So that we can know how to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in His daily, nonstop, all over the world to every single man, woman, and child attempt to bring them to repentance and to faith in Jesus for salvation. And we cooperate closely, most closely with him, when we're careful to stay focused on these three vital things that God wants every sinner to know. Number one, that it is what a person does with Christ that determines their eternal destiny. That the single greatest sin that a person can commit, the single sin for which there is no forgiveness, is a failure to trust in Christ. Number two, that the only righteousness that's acceptable in heaven is a perfect righteousness, which we can only have by putting our faith in Christ. And then number three, that there is a judgment coming after this life. And the only way to escape it is by putting our faith in Christ. That the stakes are, again, indescribably high related to what we do with Christ. The consequences are eternal. And Jesus is saying that when we make these three things our emphases, 
and speaking with the lost. We won't go too far wrong. And I think that it is just good, needed, outstanding revelation and instruction for us as Christians. And our great desire for every single person to come to know Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge that we have no ability to save a single person. We have no ability to talk someone into it. We have no ability to bring conviction upon their life and of ourselves, Lord. We have no ability to cause the light to go on in their hearts and in their minds. But that that is a work of your Holy Spirit. But we thank you, Jesus, for this revelation of what are the majors, what are the main things that we need to focus on in our sharing with the lost, the things that allow your Holy Spirit to say amen to and the minds and the hearts of people that are still lost. Lord, we pray that you would keep these three things the main focus of our conversations with the lost, giving you that voice into their lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.